Film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, filmmaker Travis Wood discusses his DIY approach to independent filmmaking, telling stories based off of his personal events, and how the Indie Rising Voices program helped made his short Black Santa. Finally, in today's concluding thought, I talk about my volunteering experience at Gotham Week. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Thank you very much for taking your time out of your day, Travis, Uncle Trav Wood. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Eddie. As I begin with each of my amazing guests, what was your first film or animated memory as you do so many types of films? I was thinking about this question because I listened to a couple episodes to prepare. Um, But growing up, I mostly just watched like a ton of TV and I feel like I wasn't really thinking about like who was behind movies are like that people were like back there writing and making creative choices. But I remember when I watched Do the Right Thing, that was like the first film that I really felt like, oh, there's like a director and a team and like script writers, like really it brought that understanding of like, there's a whole world behind this. So I think that was kind mm-hmm. of the first movie I saw where I really, that made a big difference in, in terms of thinking about like what was going on like behind the TV screen. Mm-hmm. As I said, you saw a lot of TV. I'm not sure you see a lot of TV shows or movies. Like, were there other TV show memories as well? Yeah, I mean, I just remember, like, going home every day and, like, knowing the schedule. Like, watching, like, Malcolm in the Middle, Mm -hmm. King of the Hill, The Simpsons, like, Mm -hmm. Two and a Half Men. Like, I would just know, like, every program that was going on, like, before school and after school. And I was always (laughs) trying to, like, not miss a single, you know, show that was on. Yeah, I used to be like that type of kid with a lot of Disney and Nickelodeon shows. And uh, as you said, do the right thing. Were there, was this movie or any other thing inspired you to be a filmmaker? Um, I don't think there's like a particular movie that inspired me, but I, I grew up skateboarding. So a big part of skating is filming the tricks. And I kind of naturally became like a filmer in the crew. And so I probably started doing that in like fifth or sixth grade. So since then, I've always kind of had a camera in my hand and started editing. And then as I got older, then I kind of found more like traditional filmmaking. But I feel like I've always kind of had a knack for it. Mm-hmm. And I read in your variety profile in the Tribeca's Black Sun, which you'll get to that film later, that you did not went to film school. Like what inspired you to still continue to be a filmmaker despite doing other things in life? That's a really good question. I, so I went to journalism school, kind of not really wanting to pursue journalism, but just uh, knowing I should go to college and went and did that. And then after I graduated in Minneapolis, I moved to New York and I didn't really know so much what I wanted to do, but I just knew I wanted to work in film. And then I kind of wasn't really making skateboard videos, so I just joined 
you know, like working, like I was just like being a PA and like doing a bunch of random jobs. And then at a certain point, I was like, man, this is not like fulfilling in any way. And then kind of started making short films and just out of like wanting to do something. Like I feel like I made skate videos for so long and that felt like fulfilling. And so, yeah, just wanting to like jump in and figure out what to do. I started like making like documentaries and animations just because I felt like I'd just start. Mm -hmm. And how did you find that fulfillment despite a lot of long hours on set and be able to make your own film school in the sense while after graduating from college and moving to New York? Yeah, I guess I'll give like a shout out to like one of my favorite websites is called nobudge.com. And they have a ton of movies, like short films. And so I like found that and was watching a ton of stuff on there. And my kind of goal was like, okay, I just want to like make a movie that can like get on no budge. And uh, the first film I made that wasn't skate related was called Hello No Strand. And it was basically just a documentary about my street at the time. And yeah, I just knew I wanted to start something. And I figured like, oh, I love this street. I feel like I'm always meeting interesting people. So I just started, <laughs> you know, bringing a camera like to and from work and like taking longer walks. And the movie didn't get on no budge, which made me sad. But uh, from that, I learned about like other film festivals. And uh, yeah, I just felt like good having like made something, you know, that I could like show my family like what I was up to. And that film got had a couple screenings and like just inspired me to do more. Mm -hmm. I, I have to admit, I have not seen Hello No Strand before this, but I have saw a great variety of different um, genres and also um, forms of filmmaking that you've done. One Peg Boss, Kayla N1A, Affirmative Action, and Black Santa before we get into these four shorts. I want to talk briefly of the commercial work you do like with Evika Zubach of the LA Clippers and Nike as like what inspired to continue to do commercial filmmaking while still making your own passionate projects? Yeah, I mean, as far as the commercial filmmaking, that's kind of a newer endeavor in the last like two to three years. But I mean, I've always kind of worked in filmmaking, but just in other sides that were maybe more laborious from like driving or set dressing or crew positions like that. So yeah, the commercial stuff kind of came about, I think just through making shorts and like meeting different people. And like, so for like that Clippers piece, I worked with this company called Farm League is a production company. And yeah, I knew I wanted to pitch something that was partly animated and they were super on board. So we got to make that. And yeah, I mean, commercial pieces, I think, you know, they're still fun. They still flex a lot of the same creative muscles as like making an independent project, but you get paid to make them, which is enjoyable. Um, but yeah, for every project, I guess I'm just trying to like do something new. So even if it's like a commercial project. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you work on commercial projects, how do you compromise the client vision and your vision into what you bring to the table? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's less of a compromise and often ends up being what the client or company wants. But the hope is like that in the pitching phase, you know, you can sell them on what you want and that kind of stays somewhat consistent. But for me, at the end of the day, since I do make a lot of other shorts, like 
I want to make any commercial project like as good as it can be and maybe feel like one of my own projects, but I have other kind of creative endeavors. So if at a certain point they kind of have a different vision, I'm like, you know, we'll get on board with theirs. Like I, I'll push a little bit, but at the end of the day, like they kind of bought it. So I want to just give them something they're happy with. <laughs> and that when you do commercial filmmaking, most people will think it's just a promotional project, but there's also a story behind what they're selling. Like, how do you try to show the story with an, instead of just showing a promo of the NBA or a Nike shoe? Yeah, I think just from my background, like I've never really gotten tapped to do like a project that is just a straight up like sales pitch. Like I think a lot of the people I work with are looking to kind of tell a story or kind of do stuff that's more like doc-ish or like branded content. So yeah, a lot of it is kind of coming from like real people, real stories and coming from an honest place. And so I think as the director, it's maybe trying to hold on to that honest place without letting too much brand infusion uh, kind of make that feel <laughs> a little disingenuous. So yeah, that's that's I think my job is the guiding light when especially when working with real people is trying to make sure that the project stays like based on what they told me and the like stays true to them, even if it is kind of infusing some other products or something in there. Mm -hmm. And when you stay true to the stories that the participants tell in the branded content, like how do you make sure that some animation that you do is for the story rather than just a gimmick or novelty? Ooh, that's, I mean, sometimes it might just be for fun because it looks cool. <laughs> but yeah, I think a lot of the, a lot of that stuff, it, you know, I just, if I'm putting like a visual in, I want to make sure that it is like supporting the story in some way. And whether that's like a visual that helps bring it to life. Um, but Eddie, you, that's a tough question for me because I think a lot of times I just like to play around with the pictures and visuals. So uh, <laughs> sometimes it might just be for my own enjoyment or fun of something I want to kind of play around with. And I think my background kind of comes a lot of telling my own stories. So when I'm doing that, I just want to have fun. So that style, I think, kind of goes, goes into other places. So it might not be always super intentional, but I hope it, it is at least interesting to watch. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, Uncle Trav. It's just that I see so many commercials that feel like it, it's not necessary sometimes, but the ones you do, they are. And uh, I know it can always be fun, but uh, by the end of the day, this is a storytelling world and stuff, like having so much product placement. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have, I've at least avoided like product placement sometimes in some projects, but... Yeah, I, I, I definitely don't do anything that I think takes away from the story. I'll say that much. Okay. I try not to. That's that's all I have on the branded content. And you start with your Emmy Award winning short, One Peg Boss, about getting a bicycle at a young age. What inspired you to share that story? Yeah, I mean, so that film, it's basically about to me, it's about like this big move that happened in my life. And I kind of moved not really that far away, maybe like 15 miles at the time, but it felt like a really big deal to me, like just switching schools and living in a new place. And 
I feel like people would always like ask me like why did we move why did I move and like to me I was always like because this kid like spray painted my house that's why I moved like that's what it felt like I mean granted there were other factors that I'm sure my parents were looking at um besides like this one incident but yeah I just felt like I had told that story like so many times throughout my life whenever people talk about like moving or why I lived in this suburb and after telling it for so much like I just felt like I wanted to make a film about it. Like I just, you know, I'd gotten my bike stolen so many times and I felt like as a kid that this one person like kind of like rocked my world. I really changed my trajectory. So yeah, I just wanted to tell that story. And I feel like in a lot of the films I make and especially earlier projects, I'm just like thinking about stories I've told or like things I want to talk about. So that just happened hmm. to be one. Yeah, but it is also, an adventure where like having a bike as a kid, the the young version of getting a car or something that can make you move. Oh yeah, like and the bike in that story, I remember getting it. Like I remember it being like boxed up and being in the garage with my dad and my uncle, like putting it together and like putting on the wheels and like having that bike. And I also remember like every moment of getting it stolen. Like when you walk to where your thing is and it's just not there and I think the first time it got stolen I was maybe being like a little bit careless but when I got a new bike and that one got stolen I remember like it was in a garage like I had put it inside of my cousin's like garage and granted the garage door was open but like to have it stolen when you felt that you'd like taken that extra bit of effort like is it hurts more than when you're being a little bit careless <laughs> I, I I didn't know that you had it been stolen so many times. I just only know the one instance. From the yeah, film, I had but... it. I had it stolen twice. Two bikes got stolen. Mm -hmm. Well, to add on with the film, I want to talk about how it's about memory, about uh, reliving the past, and try to share a good uh, visual medium to that memory. Yeah, totally. I I think a lot of filmmakers kind of end up pulling from like earlier, earlier days of like middle school or elementary school. And so, yeah, that was always like a very visceral memory for me. Like, you know, it's in the film, but at one part I try to steal my bike back and uh, the bully like just doesn't let me steal my own bike back, which I feel like is kind of a weird situation to get like beat up for trying to like take your own thing. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like I could never forget that. Like it, it's so just notable to me. Like, I feel like I remember the like park paths and like the minutes and like a lot of stuff in that era, I feel like is not super specific. Like, I feel like I remember have a lot of like general memories of doing stuff, but then there are these certain stories where it's just like, oh, I, I was like, I can, I can just there right now in my mind, like I can see it so clearly. Mm -hmm. And when you were showing the moment of trying to steer a bike bag, you were attempting to play different type of genres, like have it to be a heist thriller in the middle of what was supposed to be like a sweet coming of age story. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt like a heist thriller, like when I was living it, you know, like really just like looking and being like, I think that's it. I know that's my bike. I know who's, I've been following this dude, ride it around. Like, so it, it at the time, it really did feel like I was like a mini agent trying to like, complete my mission without telling my mom. Um, did your mom found out about this mission? 
Yeah, she definitely did. And like, you know, she was the one that ended up helping me get the bike back um, in the end. But yeah, I think after I got like pushed off my bike, I ran home like crying and I was probably just like, mom, this is what's going on. Like, help me with this situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the, the person that stole your bike, carry on, he's not necessarily a quote unquote villain as you understand why he did it with that jealousy in the end. Yeah, I think that took me like a while to understand for myself. And I'm happy that I finally like got there and reflected on it. But like, I think when you get a bike stolen, it does when you get anything taken from you, it feels like very personal. And, you know, I looking back, I'm like, yeah, the fact that my parents could just buy me another bike is like such a massive privilege, you know, like, the fact that I didn't have to like steal a bike to obtain one is like coming from a like pretty privileged spot. And so, yeah, I think looking back, like I don't really take it personally in that way. And, you know, I'm sure Perion would not have had to steal my bike if he just was, you know, given a bike or two like myself. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's my final takeaway these days. Yeah. And uh, just how, despite how people, like we sometimes live in a world where there are so many divisions, like even the economic divisions where Perion couldn't necessarily buy by wish that we could live where we could share instead of just stealing. Yeah, I mean totally. I think that would be like the ultimate <laughs> the ultimate thing is like, dude, you can borrow my bike whenever. Um <laughs> or if like, yeah, we could like rent bikes at school, like that could be even a cool way to go about mm-hmm. that. But yeah, it's I don't think anyone ever just steals someone's bike just to be mean. Like, I think now it's like mm-hmm. someone's taking something likely because they need it. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you spoke to Perion since then? No, I mean, I moved away at the end of, you know, after that bike incident and I never saw him again. I never knew what happened to him, but I felt it was important to use as like, personal like his actual name in the story and like keep it like true to to how I remembered it so mm-hmm. yeah I doubt, I doubt he's seen the film but yeah we, I just never never saw him again never caught up with him don't worry Perion I hope that you get to reunite with Travis one day and last question about One Peg Boss what inspired you to have the 2D animation in this one as we have I have other films that I'll share with you that are puppetry, live action, and the gi- digital one. Um yeah, so this one peg boss was my first animation I ever made. And yeah, I think just the style came from a spot of like learning. Uh I'm not super good at drawing, like I'm still not, even though I've made other more drawing focused animated films but yeah I feel like the paper cutouts and like was just like a good like entry point to animation so I feel like there was tutorials about like how to just use like construction paper cutouts and it's a bit faster than drawing all the frames too so yeah this was just like my like boot camp to animation was this film so kind of just every frame I think came from like what can I do and understand how has your experience in animation changed since doing more animated works? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I still have a pretty DIY way of doing it compared to like people like other animators. Like I am thinking about it like frame by frame, like I kind of just using like Premiere and Photoshop, um, which might be what other people use too. But yeah, I think I've progressed as far as like getting a little bit better at drawing and like learning like little tricks to speed up the process. And then I think like the biggest change was I got an iPad, which like completely made animating like so much faster like because you can just draw the frame and like click and like onion skin and draw over it like it all in one place where like before some of the films I'd made I would like draw the frame and then like put the piece of paper over the piece of paper and like draw another one and then I would take like all you know 100 pieces of paper and I would go like sit at my scanner and like scan them in one at a time and then like resize all of them which was like a very tedious process. So I think now just having a couple more tools and like a couple more tricks, it's gotten a little bit faster and like, but not not that much faster. And like, I think the style has kind of remained similar throughout all of my animated projects, I hope. Like, I really like when you can kind of see like the maker's hand behind it. Like, I definitely don't know how to do anything like glossy and uh, I don't think I'm gonna learn how to do anything glossy at any point either. <laughs> Well, you don't necessarily have to be glossy to be a great animator, and it's a great start in your animation path. Thanks, Eddie. No, I appreciate that. I definitely, yeah, when I rewatch that film and other older films, I am like, wow, these look pretty great. I like this. I don't want to lose, like, whatever. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to learn it too, too much to take away some of those rough edges. Mm-hmm. Now I want to get into your puppet film, about your ex-roommate Kayla in Kayla in 1A. What led you to tell this film on screen after you might have told this story a lot to others? Yeah, I mean, so background, I moved to um, New York City, like from Minneapolis, and I kind of had like a couple just like random apartments or like sublet housing situations, but this apartment was like the first time I was like on a lease and was gonna live somewhere for a year. And I had met my other two roommates uh, at the time, they're Jake and Alan, and they were really cool. And they were like, oh, someone else lives here as well, but I never met her and that was Kayla. And then when I moved in, I just slowly started to realize like she was kind of a, a very interesting person to live with. And like, I think it just, yeah, it started to hit me where I was like, she's always home. And she like, I, I don't think she had a job the year we lived together, really. So yeah, I just, every time people would come over, I just felt like I was, I was like, dude, there's something up with my roommate. Like, this is a very weird living situation. And I think like a lot of people in New York can relate to that. Like, you just kind of end up living with four strangers and the hope is like, that you are like friends and it clicks and it works but i feel like we all kind of have lived with that roommate where it's just like not a good fit and i think kayla was like my first like not a good fit roommate um and yeah living with her i just felt like i had this almost like a character study you know because you're i'm not really talking to her or interacting with her in like that way like sometimes i would be like hey or hi but we never really had like a full conversation or exchange too much info. So the way I was learning info about Kayla was like just observing things around my house, like what's on the table, what's in the sink, like, you know, what are the ways we're interacting non-verbally? So after like 
six months of that, I just felt like I had material for a film and I, yeah, I didn't really know what, what or how I wanted to like document this situation, but, um, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the reason why there is no voiceover in this film like One Peg Boss because it's based off your own conversations that you didn't talk to her. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's kind of like just my thoughts and like observations in the space. And, you know, kind of the miniature set, like I wanted to like recreate my apartment, which was a really fun task to like, just go to dollar stores and like find little random things and like make that set, which was in my room. So I did make the film while I lived with her. Yeah, I'd talked to I'd been thinking about other ways to like document it, but it just felt like anything else was like, a real invasion of privacy like I was like as far as like taking pictures or like recording the space like um just yeah making my own little mini set where I could retell my perspective on it felt like a fun approach and I'd also seen another film on Vimeo that had like a really rough like DIY mini set and I was like okay I can do that like I like being crafty mm -hmm. and uh, what was it like to build the doll I mean, it was fun. I kind of just with, the, the, yeah, I think there's no like real structure or intention like in how it was made. Like, I think I just grabbed like a bunch of like duct tape and like pipe cleaners and like dollar store paint. Kind of like one I remember, like, so I lived on Nostrand Avenue and I would walk like just like four or five blocks to like this dollar store, like pretty much every day while I was making this. And I remember like the woman working at the dollar store was like, what are you doing? Like, are you a school teacher? Like what is going on? You come here every day and you're just buying like one or two random things. Like what, what's going on? Um, so yeah, that was, that was funny when she called me out for just like going to the store, but yeah, just take a trip and like grab whatever random item and I feel like that's the cool thing about like dollar stores in New York is they're just like generations of like stuff in there so you never know what you could like find that um yeah like the the scene with like the little baby in that film I just happened to find like a little baby doll at the dollar store and I thought it was funny so I just put that in sheerly because like oh I found it at the dollar store <laughs> well for future filmmakers do all the stuff you need in one trip to, so that the cashier will not call you out in the future <laughs> but yeah i just also want to ask you what inspired to use the home video or sd camera aesthetic instead of like a dslr yeah, I mean, I so I have a bunch of these like old cameras like VHS and like mini DV and Hi8 and just like all of those at my disposal. And I also had like a more like HD DSLR, but I felt like when I shot the DSLR footage, it like it it almost didn't like look right. Like it looked like just like shaky or like weird. Like I feel like it something about it like felt off and like so I was operating the doll and the camera myself and something about like shooting it on the height camera felt like it was like hiding some of the shakes or like it felt like it just had a better quality that felt more intentional where like the DSLR felt like like I was kind of messing something up <laughs> when mm -hmm. I played back the footage so I ended up just like yeah grabbing this older camera and 
when I watched the footage, I was like, yes, this feels right. This feels intentional. Like, and because of like the zoom, like built in zoom on the lens, I felt like I could do a couple cooler, like camera moves by myself that I might not have been able to do on like a DSLR. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's fun to hear about how we can always experiment the different forms of camera specifications. And it is a film about observation and uh, seeing everyday life, whether it's not working like like a real corporate work life, but uh, but how Kayla lives through her day. Yeah, I mean, I the approach I took was wanting it to just be like trying to feel honest and real. And I think like the story that came out of that was like, maybe more impactful than I had set out to do are kind of built up something more than what I had thought when I like was writing it or making it. But yeah, I always thought like, okay, Kayla could see this and I don't want her to, I, I want it to feel at least somewhat real or that I didn't just make up a bunch of stuff. And maybe that's the theme is I just keep telling stories about other people and hoping they don't see it, but <laughs> are the other people that I interact with and uh, only getting to tell my kind of observations or side of the story but you know I think if Kayla or Perion saw these films they they would feel that they were somewhat real <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she is always being occupied with something even if it's just not focusing on this one task over the other and uh, I told you do combine like the baking of the boiling of the pan <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was just something I observed in real life that I would tell people where, I, like, she would boil the water in a in a pot, and, like, we did have a kettle, like, because she drank just so many different types of, like, teas and, like, weight loss teas and stuff like that, so, yeah, that, that was, like, something, like, a funny anecdote I would tell friends, or I was just, like, I don't know why she does this, like, who boils water in the pot when there's just a perfectly good kettle, like, what's going on, and so I was really happy to put that, like, observation in the film and you know when I get to screen the film more I felt like people would always laugh at that joke so I was mm -hmm. yeah very happy with that and like even the boiling water in the pot was like a fun little like science thing like I looked up like how to make water boil and it was like put like baking soda and like soap and whatever like things in like a little spot so I felt like my boiling water effect was also really fun to to make mm -hmm. <laughs> it is fun do you ever thought of telling Kayla hey, you have a good kettle. Why the hell are you doing this? Well, I think if we had like been friends or interacted more, I might've felt comfortable telling her that. But like, when I say we didn't talk, I mean, I could only think of like one conversation we had for living together for a year. That wasn't like, did you do this? Did you see Jake? Like, here's this thing. Like maybe one time we had like a, just like not, like roommate logistical conversation, but most of the time we would just say like, oh, excuse me, hello, hi, well, sorry. Let's sneak by it. Like very, very disparate conversations. And I, I don't know why, because I feel like I try and connect with, you know, people and especially roommates, like me and my other roommates would hang out. But yeah, with Kayla, we just never, never quite clicked. Just want to add that not uh, every roommate will always going to be the exact type of friendship you expect out of all roommates you have in life. So it's great to see that kind of variety between that and the other roommates you mentioned. Yeah, totally. Like Jake and Alan were 
like awesome roommates and uh yeah we would you know spend a little bit of time together here and there so it's it's a mixed bag and like I my apartment after that I had three like stellar roommates that were like awesome that I still am like talk to and so yeah but I guess when you have like perfect roommates you, you have less material for movies so sometimes it's good to, to have a little controversial roommate maybe mm-hmm. and you don't know if Kayla saw the film I don't know if she ever saw it but I I don't think she did mainly because we're so disconnected like I you know I, I like barely could remember her last name if that's like shows how connected we were like so I, I don't think that she'd necessarily have seen it and Kayla's a pretty common name so maybe I don't think anyone outside of our apartment would even know to be like this is you <laughs> mm-hmm. well it is a great story and now I want to go into your digital desktop slash archival doc our affirmative action that shows an interesting inquiry of your job search and what did you decide to share that story? Um, yeah, I think, you know, similar theme with other films kind of comes from what I'm like talking about, but basically I had moved to California very briefly in the middle of living in New York. And when I got out there, I was like, okay, I want to like get a job because I didn't really know anyone to like freelance with. And so I was, yeah, for the first time, like, since college, like, really, like, on job websites and, like, trying to fine-tune my resume and do more corporate stuff like that, and, uh, you know, as I was just looking for jobs, I, like, literally kept going, noticing, like, okay, these meet the team pages have, like, tons of white people, a bunch of dogs, and, like, zero black people at all, which is not really a welcoming sign when you're looking for a job as like a young black guy so I basically just took a photo of it and put it on my Instagram because I thought it was really funny like how many I was finding like just on accident and then yeah a lot of people were just replying and being like this is really funny and messed up and like sending me more and kind of from that I you know I didn't have a job honestly like I had more time than ever living in California and I just like was like you know what let me like go through and like screenshot these and maybe I'll make like a photo book or like something like that and yeah then it just kind of naturally evolved into a film since I've never made like a photo book or anything Mm -hmm. yeah can you talk about more of the community aspect of all the different people on Instagram sharing you all the fucked up meet the team pages and the ones you find that would we through this the film that the final cut of the film yeah I mean to start I feel like Instagram to me is like su- always been like such a good community and like a pretty like motivating factor in some sense but yeah I just think from like posting it and seeing that people react like to it like pretty well and are also seeing like the absurdity and humor in something like this is like kind of like validating or pushes the idea forward maybe than if I had just been thinking it to myself and especially when like getting other people sending me them and I'm like okay this is like a phenomenon this is much bigger than like you know a small handful of companies in Southern California and so Mm -hmm. it actually became like 
really easy and fun to like spend a day just like going to different websites and like finding them. And I, I probably found like, I found so many, like it, it had to be like 50 or a hundred, like it was like a lot of pages and teams and stuff. So the ones I put in the film were like just the funniest, I think, or like the most absurd or like had some sort of element that made them stand out a little bit more than others. So I tried to be pretty, uh, pretty fair in who I called out, you know, because, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I didn't like obscure anyone's like name or company or website. So, yeah, I think to me, it was like the, the ones that were the most ridiculous where it's like you had the biggest teams or like multiple dogs or you had a really funny title for your dog. Like that's, I think part of it too, is like, it's still kind of like, I get why people are tempted to put the dog on their website. Cause it's like funny or quirky, but yeah. So th that was kind of the process was like, I just, I had more material than, than anything that I had so much material to choose from, unfortunately. And so mm -hmm. refining it was just easy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what inspired you to include the Mark Zuckerberg trial? You know, I had actually seen that clip like live on the news, like at my parents' house. And I, I think it was like either before or after. I can't remember where in the film if I had already had the idea and then saw it or if I had seen it like a while before, but I had remembered that clip and it was really, I think, important to see like, yeah, that like this is like a big phenomenon. And like, I really just liked that guy, Mr. Butterfield, like holding up the thing and saying like, this, these five white people you have on your board, like that does not represent America. Can you do better? Um, and yeah, so I felt like it, that was me giving that message to other companies too. Like you don't have to just be Facebook to be a very non-inclusive company. You know, the big ones are doing it, but smaller guys are doing it too. And so, yeah, I love that mm -hmm. clip. It's just like me getting to like co-sign that and get that message out. Like you can do better. This does not represent us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a very poignant message and use of it. And uh, how did you know when you wanted to transition from like the wider um, snapshot of all the people on the teams versus when to give a close up on the one dog or that one white person on the screen? Yeah, I basically found like some cool like temp music and just kind of started editing alongside the like temp track of like just going with the flow of that like you know if the pace was slower like showing the wides and like you know if there was like a cool beat like punching in on that but yeah i think every cut is kind of motivated by like what's funny and like i think mm -hmm. there's a lot of you know cuts in there where it's like sometimes funny to just like super zoom in or like changing it up so i think as i was going through it was just like what's yeah, what's making me like kind of laugh or giggle or calling the absurdity to this. Um, but yeah, like, I feel like that was like my first like really successful short film. So it was like, yeah, very validating that I got to like call out these people. And then the film got to go a lot farther than previous projects of mine. Yeah, South by. Yeah, I was like, got South by got like, you know, more views online than other projects. And like, um, so yeah, that was cool. And like, I definitely do know a lot of the not a lot, but at least a handful of the companies that were in the film did see the film. So that made me happy that the message was delivered to them. But yeah, like companies would reach out and be like, what What should we do? And I would be like, you know, hire a black person or don't put the dog on your website, maybe. But 
I think kind of a miss, a miss that I would see is like, I went back and looked at some of the websites and like the companies didn't add any black people to their teams. They just took the dogs off the website, which I think is like, not the message I'm trying to send. Like the, the message here is you should be hiring a more diverse staff, not necessarily just lifting a couple pictures of dogs off the website. So like, you know, it's, it's always an, an effort to, to get your message out, but you know, some, some places I did go back and look and I was like, oh, nice. You did like, your team is slightly more diverse than when this film was made, which is, you know, a good sign. Man, that's fucked up. Come on, just hire talented people who happen to be BIPOC instead of a lot of white people. That's a crazy reaction. No, I mean, I, there's, there's a lot of excuses that'll come through, but yeah, it's uh, still, yeah, still pretty prevalent, but it's always cool when you see that a team <laughs> is pushing forward and you know i'd made this film like before george floyd was murdered and i feel like after that happened there was a really big push and a lot of initiatives for really cool like diversity programs um or like mandates or like just yeah different things that i feel like have made uh started to make a difference um in the last couple of years so that's been it's cool to see mm -hmm. and the temp music that you used in the earlier cuts so was it the same music in the final cut or a different one? It was different, but it was like this DJ had made a really cool like um, compilation of like different beats and different things. And I like, I was just like stalking him for like months being like, dude, can I please use this music? Can I use this music? Can I pay you? Like, what can we do? And uh, he just wasn't into it, which surprised me because he was like also like a black DJ. So I just assumed he would be like excited <laughs> or like down to hear me out, but he was not down at all. And uh, then later, I'd, I don't even know how I met this dude, but I met this composer, Brendan Moriak, through some friend of a friend. And I just gave him the film and was like, gave like very broad like strokes of like, I think this should be like scary. This should be like funny, like at these spots, like some sort of beat should hit. And he just came back like first or second try with like this amazing composition that I think like really makes the film like brought it to the next level for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did add a lot of the laughs and the absurdity with the final score. And in this film, you're presenting a reality of an America or presenting the reality of the hiring decision. You're not there to show an answer, just showing a reality. Yeah, exactly. And like, I, because of South by this was like the first film I had that was like on Letterboxd or like Amazon. So I went through and like, saw reviews and you know, people's thoughts on the film, which was a whole new, uh, a whole new thing. I feel like a lot of shorts, you just kind of get to live with them unreviewed, which is can be nice. But this being like the first film I had that got reviews, um, I would kind of see that a lot of them were kind of getting at that question, like, we want more information, this isn't really telling us anything, like, just wanting more from the film. And yeah, I just, I didn't feel that it was like that sort of movie, you know, like, I wasn't really informing myself, like, anything more than just what was presented to me, where I'm just like, yeah, I see a bunch of white people, and I see a bunch of animals, and I don't see any black people, like, that's all the information the company gave me. And that's the information I'm going to give you guys, too. So I, you know, I'm not really, I didn't put, like, that much, like, back-end 
info on like how to go to the next level which I since releasing the film like I did talk to like professors and read other books and like get a lot more deep like background on like why America lacks diversity and how companies have done it like well and wrong um but yeah not not a super heavy on that side of the information film mm-hmm. not every film should all should have to answer a question or just it should just show life and uh, for the people that give notes those reviews they're ignorant and uh, now i want to talk about your tribeca in the rising short black santa about henry odes shift during christmas at the mall what inspired you to tell this story yeah so basically um going back to a commercial project i had met this gentleman that had been a santa for like 50 years or something so i was like thinking about making a documentary about him and because i was like wow you've been a black santa for like super long like that's really cool and the pandemic happened and he kind of stopped performing and you know whatever pandemic stuff and then i saw rising voices which is basically this like initiative by lena waith and indeed to fund 10 (laughs) short films from different bipoc filmmakers and when i saw it i was just like oh i gotta like write a script and come up with an idea and my buddy west that co-wrote the film he was gonna originally make the documentary with me and um yeah, we were just like spitballing ideas. And he was like, dude, what if we make like something about a Santa? And I was like, totally, I'm game. So we just like sat down and wrote a script in like two or three days and like got chosen for this program and felt like geniuses, but then had like multiple months of rewriting and refining the story and the script and stuff. And what inspired you to include the son and have a a family dynamic in the film as you just originally started with just DeSanta. Yeah, so a big question in like all these development meetings, like we would have like lots of calls about like story and script with like people in the program. And they were like, why is he a Santa? Like what what makes him do this? Like it's it's gotta be for like money or like he's got to have like some weird thing he's avoiding but they were like what is motivating him and you know our answer for a while is just like he's a good guy he loves christmas like he just really <laughs> loves the holidays and that answer kept getting like shut down like that's not a real thing <laughs> so um so then yeah in thinking about why he was doing this like we're like oh he does want to like be an image of a Santa out there and who's he doing this for? And that's kind of how the sun came to be is like, he's got to kind of have like someone that he's actually doing this for that like makes sense of like, why is this guy going to the mall and doing this? And um, yeah, in bringing the sun character, I felt like it just felt really natural because me and Wes both felt like we, yeah, could just quickly relate to like being in an embarrassing situation with a parent and kind of being uh, drug along for for something like that. So we felt like, you know, if the kid is the one who is like questioning the dad's validity as a Santa, that that's maybe even more impactful than like a random customer. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
as we include the sun, it does have a theme of age where Henry can be Santa for many years, while Otis, he can only be an elf for a limited amount of time unless he stays short for a long time. Yeah, we, I mean, when we thought to make him the elf, like, I feel like that's when the film really kind of took took shape and kind of got to the next level and especially putting him in the tightest elf costume we could find uh i think really highlighted that like he's at then he's he's growing out of being an elf <laughs> both uh you know as being 13 but also physically he cannot fit this suit for much longer <laughs> and uh, as there are so many movies of santas and we're there are certain tropes they want to stay away from within this Santa movie. Yeah, I think the only one that I was really thinking of was like him actually being Santa or something like magical happening. Like, I feel like that does kind of is a thing where like, you know, at the end of the film, his car like flies away into the sky or like, you know, so him actually being Santa. Like, I just was like, he is not, he is not literally a magical guy in terms of like, uh, the actual being like a literal Santa. So that was one thing I knew I wanted to stay away from. I wanted to kind of be like more based in our reality. Um, so I did want to stay away from that. But yeah, there was, that was kind of the main thing. I, I definitely watched a lot of Christmas movies as we were trying to like think of ideas, but it didn't really feel like that many were like based in in this world that kind of like were like, oh, could translate over. Mm-hmm. And the film also tackles a lot of corporate claims of diversity, like affirmative action, where Josh would be surprised about two Black people being at the shift, and also how there are still signs, posters, and even the White Santa doll that they're not really committing to inclusion. Yeah, I mean, so Josh to me was like a really fun character to work with Wes and write. And, you know, yeah, I think everything we see about Santa for the most part, especially at like a mall or corporate environment is just this old white guy. And yeah, I felt like that would be really fun to play with because I feel like 2022 racism or wokeness can kind of look very interesting where people are trying their best, but maybe they're kind of clunking through it. And so, yeah, Josh to me was like, here's the 2022 version of a Santa showing up at a mall. Like he's not, he's actually excited to see this guy and, but is almost awkwardly excited. And, you know, I really like you calling out that, yeah, there's no like other mentions or like signage or anything that is, doesn't reflect like a traditional Santa. Cause I think it's funny to me that like, a black person could just show up to something like and the boss or manager might not even know that they're black but then is instantly like taking credit for like doing something of value or like helping that person out or you know kind of co-opting that moment where he doesn't even know henry's gonna be black but it is instantly like yes i've been waiting for this and i finally did it but it's like you didn't really do anything this guy just showed up <laughs> like, it was so funny how he still have to question Henry's existence. And I also love the camera angles in the beginning that shows 
all the discomfort, like the crazy pants, like the car, and then where I was behind the, the hiding behind the dolls. I, I really love that. Thanks, man. Yeah, me and uh, the cinematographer Jason, I have to thank for a lot of uh, that stuff. Jason Chu, he, yeah, it was super awesome to work with. And we went to that mall like two or three days before the shoot and just spent like six hours like walking around the mall and like hanging out in the parking lot and just like planning stuff. And I feel like he just brought so much to the table in terms of like visually what is going to make this like funnier. Um, because yeah, he shoots a lot of comedy, so he has a really good like sensibility of like adding a lot of just humor with the lens. Mm-hmm. And uh, this film is most likely the biggest crew you've ever worked with. And what is it like to literally secure locations and having to work with a bigger a hundred thousand dollar budget? Yeah, I mean, that was a whole new experience. You know, all the other films we've talked about have a crew of one and maybe a post crew of like two. So it's, yeah, it was was quite a change. Um, and yeah, I guess I have to just really thank the program and my producer, Gabriella. They like really shepherded me along through this experience. But it kind of came to be like, I was like, oh, like this is what, directing is you know like I'd made other shorts with with like some crew size but like I feel like this was the first one where I was just like especially as like a short narrative that I was just like oh wow I'm like literally just here to like watch the performance and direct the actors and like don't have to deal with all that other stuff like I I don't know how they booked the locations or like you know when the crew shows up I'm just like oh awesome but like I didn't really have any part in that sort of background which is cool it just kind of like happens and you get to show up and go kind of look at your monitor and talk to the actors and talk to the dp and everyone else is just kind of like magically there to help you <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, to add on with working narrative like do you expect to work in more narrative after doing several action sports and documentaries yeah i mean i'm definitely excited to do more like i think with narrative I have a lot more lessons to learn and I think in all forms of filmmaking I do but yeah just like working with actors and then reviewing that footage and like thinking about like how could I get something better or like what angles did I miss or what do I need it was you know it's a lot different of an experience for me than like a doc or a personal doc where if I think I need something I just go and film it or record myself or just change it <laughs> so it's like yeah, kind of a different muscle flex where like, okay, I need to actually get this inside of the camera, like in a timely fashion. And, you know, the other thought I've been reflecting on since the program is like, I think since moving to New York, I've made a lot more friends in filmmaking and like people to collaborate with. And I think a lot of my early stuff, it's like, was fun to make, but was a really like singular, like more like lonely experience where it's like, it's nice to have made a movie by yourself but it's like really nice to like work with people and makes the projects better and is like more fun so I think like now that I have more <laughs> friends and collaborators like I think I'll be pushing more towards like narratives or like yeah just collaborating on other docs or yeah just being around people while you're making stuff is really enjoyable to mm -hmm. me that's fun to hear and also want to add a couple more questions specifically on Black Santa is about the doing things for love versus 
things that you might be embarrassed as it's exemplified in the dance that the Henry tried to get Otis to do before the end. Yeah, I think a big theme and like kind of a mandated theme for some of these projects is like the theme of work. And so I think, you know, for Henry, the work of being Black Santa or the work of just being Santa is like just about like delighting kids and spreading like Christmas joy and like being like just a positive figure around. So I don't think it's for him necessarily about the money at all. Like, I think the money comes secondary to just that work. And so, yeah, I think in a way we kind of wanted to highlight, yeah, there are all different types of jobs. And like for Otis on the other end, this is 100% a job. Like he is only an elf because he wants money to go to skateboard camp, but he hates every minute of it. So I think we did get like two spectrums of the job between like Henry and Otis, like the different reasons you might show up. Mm -hmm. And what were the other ways that the film demonstrate the theme of meaning work? Yeah, I think, you know, everyone, there, there's a lot of workers around, you know, we have Josh, who I think is also showing like he wants to do a good job and like kind of is in a position of power, but he's kind of clunking through his job in his own way. And then, yeah, Otis not wanting to work. And then to me, the meaning is like, yes, you, at the end of the day, you do want to get paid, but you want to have a good time doing it if you can, you know, and I think a lot of those lessons are what I try and take in my life. Like if, if something's, you know, work-wise, I'm like just trying to always do something that I think is, if not fun, is like with really good people and uh, makes the time go by fast. You know, I think like over the years, the one thing I've gotten better at is like not doing jobs that are not fulfilling and also just make me anxious. <laughs> like, I feel like so much of my career in New York, like to start was just like these more laborious crew jobs, which can be good for like learning a lot, but ultimately like weren't a good fit for me. Cause I think like that sort of stuff just, yeah, didn't really give me the juice to like go and do it the next day. So I think for work, it's like, you know, Henry's doing something where he probably has another full-time job outside of this, but Santa gives him the juice to like come back and want to do it again and over and over. Mm -hmm. It is everyone's goal to do something that you love at the end of the day instead of doing something and then you hate your job as it's common that many people hate their jobs and that the, there's in the moment when I was getting teased by his high school friends, like I could see why I was the one to do it because of peer pressure and in an implicit level of masculinity where like it is a skateboarding at times seems masculine and then like the dance that or some other stuff can seem quote unquote effeminate. Yeah, I mean, I'm a like lifelong skateboarder, like I mentioned, so I feel like that sneaks into a lot of projects and when I was thinking of like Otis and being 13 I was like my worst nightmare would be like that someone would see me like even if I was enjoying it that just like someone from school would like see me in this embarrassing costume and like being embarrassing and that would be like yeah just my worst fear so I wanted to give that to Otis is like dude if my skate friends showed up to the mall I would I would lose it um, mm -hmm. And like similarly with that dance, I feel like that comes from like a very personal spot. Like 
I don't know, every time I'm doing anything like at some form of party with my mom, she's like asking me to dance or asking me to like tell a joke. Like she's just like, do that thing again that I found funny. <laughs> like, please just do it for me. And so she was kind of a big inspiration for wanting Otis to do a dance throughout the film. Um, mm. And yeah, like in the same way he does it when it's just him and his dad, like that's maybe how I would do it. Like, I don't want to perform for other people, but if it's just like between me and my mom, like then I can get on board with that. Mm -hmm. That's sweet to hear. And uh, it got to play as a, sh a short before the feature. Nope. Along with all the other nine Indian rising voices. Like most of like to have uh, your film play before Jordan Peele's, especially that besides festivities in both of them, there's not much of a similarities between the two. Well, you know, I I feel like we both had characters named Otis, which is pretty cool. Um, that me and Jordan Peele are were just our minds were right there naming some characters in our films Otis. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think aside from um, you know, it 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 it's just was really cool, honestly, to be able to like, I think everyone that I know wanted to see Nope. So being able to, like, direct people to, like, a specific theater and get to show the short before that was just, like, awesome. <laughs> and, yeah, I guess I just have to give another shout out to, like, Indeed and the program. Like, they just set all that up and have been, like, yeah, trying to get the films out there in really cool ways. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, that was, like, a, a highlight of the summer was watching Nope, but getting to have, like, some, you know, feeling somewhat related to it and... Yeah, I guess the hope down the line is like that there's another yeah, yeah, young black filmmaker whose short can show up before my film in a theater. Mm -hmm. That's an accomplishment that can't wait for that everyone felt in some way, whether that was the direct note screening or the special Tribeca premiere. And that it's a lot of we've talked a lot of great stuff today about the doing stories after being told about it multiple times or just how after we saw something online is worth showing in the moving image and thank you for taking your time out of your day uncle trap and before i let you go is there a film you want to recommend that's an uncut gem is it say one more time uh i is there a film you want to recommend that's a little too unseen to many people yeah okay so my big recommendation um which i saw a couple years ago was this icelandic film called under the tree and mm -hmm. it's like just like a pretty like low budget thriller but it's like just expertly done and has like a bunch of really good twists and is just an awesome film and i haven't seen it since so i should rewatch it too but if you can check that film out because i feel like if you're writing scripts it's just like a masterclass in like, okay, here's how to make like a perfect script that takes place in like uh, with smaller resources. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll definitely check out this low budget thriller and learn how to know, know how to make a film using the how with the limited stuff you can instead of uh, saying, no, I can't. Like you always imagine they need more money. No, you can do something with a hundred thousand. And uh, I hope that you have a good day. Travis. Likewise. Thanks so much, Eddie.
Today's concluding thought, volunteering at Gotham Week. I got the opportunity to volunteer at Gotham Week last month. I was bummed I had to miss the Camden International Film Festival for this, but it was worth it. I knew I would reunite with many doc people at both events, and I saved some money when staying in New York instead of traveling to Maine. Gotham was a little weird to start because I did not know what I was going to do until two days before the event, and I would get a lot of emails that would confuse me. I also tried to get a paid position that week, but I was rejected. However, I am committed to the organization's values and would not turn down this opportunity. I was eventually assigned to the Spotlight on Doc section. I didn't know how I was given or if I told them that this section is my preference, but I have to thank God for being in the area where I'm familiar the most and for having reunions and greetings with the filmmakers of that section. It was also at that time that I learned how to hustle. I saw Black Gotham books of all the projects in development, production, or post, and I secured a copy as it has an important contact for each film there. So, who knows who I get to reach out to come on this podcast. Only time will tell. Anyway, I also saw sheets of emails and phone numbers from professionals, and I had to keep them in my system so that I could reach them one day to help get my future films off the ground and start a long-term friendship. I also learned that my volunteer pass gave me access to the receptions. Unfortunately, I couldn't go to the post-screen receptions of Nanny and Goodnight Oppie as my supervisor told me that it was heavily RSVP for industry professionals. However, through magical happenings, I got into two happy hours at the docks at Broken Army Terminal. One day, it was because of rain that all the volunteers and I got to go inside. On the other day, I was talking to a professional I know and the guard just gave me a wristband when they saw me going up and a blank side on my credential. I laughed a little bit after that happened because I can't believe my badge was not shown properly and that the guard just saw me as another regular attendee. I was happy that I volunteered there. I got a free year-long subscription to the org and can get discounts on events. I made some relationships with volunteers and had good reunions with some filmmakers. I even had a chance to meet Zach Woods of The Office as he had a feature film in the narrative section of Gotham Week. Nigiatu Jusu remembers my face, but not my name as she called me Sean after we met at New Directors New Films. I also spoke to two of Filmmakers Magazine New Faces class of this year. That week, Antonio Marzial of the short and upcoming feature adaptation of Starfuckers and Xanda Shea Brown of Blood Runs Down and the upcoming short Benediction. I was heavily steady on getting the filmmakers ready for their meeting and some of them thanked me for ensuring their discussions took place close to on time. I hope I can work with the Gotham again soon in any capacity, and that's today's concluding thought.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continual Mutation, courtesy of Kama, and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Frumpkin signing off.